Chapter 4. The Ruse is on Me. The opening quote for this chapter is from Henry David Thoreau. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. By December of 1980, my wife and I have a newborn daughter, and I have been working for the past year as a corporate recruiter at Ted's technical search firm in Mountain View, California. After agreeing to meet him for breakfast the year before, hoping to solicit his help in finding a job, I ended up accepting his offer to work for him instead. I was 26, married and in debt, with a head full of spiritual notions that only proved how naive I was to the ways of the world. Ted, on the other hand, was a Green Beret veteran of the Vietnam War and an altogether worldly man looking to expand his operation. I first met Ted at a TM lecture that I'd given at the Los Gatos Public Library. He'd arrived in his Saab sports car wearing blue jeans, cowboy boots, a red bandana around his neck, and an attractive woman on his arm. At the time of my talk, I didn't know he was a TM teacher or a veteran, or that the questions he asked were chosen to reveal what he wanted his girlfriend to hear about meditation. But I would later learn he was equally fond of sharing stories about surviving missions in Vietnam as he was about his exploits as a teacher of TM. When I first began to work for Ted, he had three other employees who had soon moved on. And I knew why. Because I also hated the job. The business was hell with all the cold calling and steady diet of rejection, along with the general instability of commission work. Sure, I made some money, was driving a new car, and was working for a fellow meditator, but I didn't feel like I belonged. Instead, I felt as if I was hiding out on the fringes of the business world, working at a job that made no sense to my life, aside from the money it generated to sustain my existence. It simply wasn't enough for me to meditate twice daily like someone might habitually brush their teeth and then go to a job that lacked any spiritual perspective or impact. Doing so felt like I was merely going through the motions of being human, while secretly longing for spiritual content in my life. In fact, unless I initiated it, talk of spiritual matters just didn't happen, when all I wanted was to steer every conversation into one about consciousness, spirituality, and enlightenment, and was always looking for an opportunity to do so. Despite my feelings of spiritual isolation during the first year, I make the decision to give it one more. My reasoning was that if it took me one year to learn the job, it might be worthwhile to spend the next seeing what I could really do with it. Because of my desire to work with others that shared my spiritual path, I suggested Ted that we hire other TM teachers, but he's not keen on the idea. Despite being a TM teacher himself, he didn't have a good opinion of them in the business world. To him, they seemed unsuited to the work. But I prevailed and got my best friend hired, which not only disproved Ted's bias, but also made my days more enjoyable. After my friend began making money, word spreads to other TM centers that meditators were making good money in the headhunting business. Due to our growing success, we hire and I train and manage more than 30 others to do the job. Over time, my role shifts first to office manager and later to VP and partner in the company. Most days, my work consists of overseeing client assignments, candidate qualifications, and search strategies with those in my charge, and then during my free time, I would dial for dollars on my own accounts. But even though I've been promoted in my responsibilities and am surrounded by others who share my spiritual orientation, I couldn't escape the nagging feeling that I was still doing something that had nothing to do with what life is about. 
Now, despite what you might think or have heard, recruiting is one of the most emotionally challenging jobs you can imagine. It's not only the job that's a challenge, but so is the environment in which it exists. Though I did not know this when I started, I soon learned that as a profession, recruiting was considered on par with that of a used car salesman, generating eye-rolling responses whenever we told people what we did for a living. Sometimes people would even reply, oh, I know what you are. You're a headhunter. You make money by stealing people from other companies. In response to such criticisms, many recruiters attempted to alter this perception by incorporating the language of the elite ranks of the business, hoping to garner sophistication by improving their image. As a result, job assignments became projects, candidates became clients, and headhunting became search. Regardless of what you called it, corporate recruiting in the 80s was hell for a number of reasons. Sure, there were actual human beings at the end of every phone line, but apart from that, there were no push-button telephones or advanced communications technology, fax machines, voicemail, email, or speed dialing. The internet was still a decade away, and computers with affordable local networks were non-existent. This was old-school recruiting, the kind that required newspapers, technical journals, and white papers to research client companies, job listings, and leads on potential candidates. Then, after we'd made our list, we would engage in many hours of very, very cold, cold calling. In those days, being a good recruiter took real guts and the capacity to deal with a steady diet of rejection. One had to be willing to be on the phone with complete strangers who, as a rule, didn't want to talk and who, from the words, Hello, my name is Gary and I'm a recruiter conducting a search for, would either tighten up, shut up, or simply hang up. And on the off chance that you did get someone to stay on the phone, you could always sense that they were looking for the next opportunity to exit the conversation. To counter this, we had to keep prospective clients on the line long enough to convince them we could find the talent they wanted while hiding the truth that we were often clueless about what they needed. This contradiction created a kind of limbo that only allowed us to remain in conversations for as long as we didn't reveal how little we actually knew. We couldn't say, Hey, I have no idea what that is without jeopardizing our credibility after having just claimed that we were capable of filling that position. So to mask my ignorance, I would tentatively regurgitate the buzzwords I had just heard my clients use, sprinkle with what I thought was the appropriate industry jargon. In this way, I engaged in a verbal form of Russian roulette where one wrong phrase would kill the conversation. That's the heart of the recruiting business in which I was baptized. Fortunately, Ted, being a former Green Beret, had developed strategies and tactics to survive the harsh environment of the Silicon Valley. Despite his training, the day comes when I'm on the phone with a VP at Atari who, after telling me of his need for a director of digital engineering, launched into a very detailed description of what he's looking for in his ideal candidate. Even though I'd asked the right questions, said the right words, and made it past the point where the VP would have excused himself from the call, I felt very intimidated. Meanwhile, I struggled to appear calm and alert, even nonchalant, as my mind tries to distinguish what he's saying from the incessant internal chatter that tells me I'm doomed to fail because this has nothing to do with what life is about. In the midst of this, I'm furiously taking notes on every word this guy is uttering while fighting to hold the pen in my sweaty hand as rings of sweat stain the armpits of my shirt. The VP, on the other hand, is oblivious to my panic and just putters along, telling me what he's looking for. All the while, the voice in my head is chanting, this has nothing to do with what life is about. This has nothing to do with what life is about. This has nothing to do with what life is about. Of course, this only serves to arouse feelings of hopelessness and dread. Still clueless to my struggle, the VP continues with his description using words like logic, digital, circuit, integrated circuit, chip, and analog. 
until they begin to blur my mind and I can't tell them apart. Despite my inner turmoil, it begins to sink in that I'm actually having a real conversation and I need to settle into data gathering mode. But my fears increase every time I remind myself that I'm talking to a VP of electrical engineering at Atari, for God's sake, and I know nothing about electrical engineering. My undergraduate degree is in liberal studies and Asian philosophy. All I know about technology, I learned from Star Trek. I really need to stop him and ask that he clarify his terminology. But how do I do so without revealing my ignorance? And I better do it quick because too much information is going by and it's not going to look so good when I have to call back in a couple of days for clarification. Next, I watch as my anxiety increases at the mere thought of asking this man a question that was so fundamental to the work in which I claimed was my expertise. Along with panic, exacerbated by a lifetime of pretending, posturing, and manipulating others to believe I had the right answers, all the while hoping they actually existed, ran the thought that I was a spiritual person who had been meditating for more than a decade. So why was I so flustered and terrified if for all this time I had been doing my one thing? Straining under the weight of my life's inconsistencies and searching for the proper moment to ask my question, I recall Ted saying that the only stupid questions were the ones not asked. In the next moment, something gives way to the truth that I could no longer avoid, and I hear myself say, Bob, could you slow down a bit? I'm confused by your use of the words logic, digital, circuit, integrated circuit, chip, and analog. Could you describe how they're different? Abruptly, Bob stops talking leaving only silence and the sound of my heart beating in my chest and eardrums. From his end of the line, there's a long, deep inhalation followed by a very long, heavy sigh, the kind that requires no explanation. I can't believe what just came out of my mouth, and apparently neither can Bob. That's it, I think. I'm a goner. But surprisingly, when Bob finishes exhaling, he launches into a very detailed and comprehensible description, which answers my initial question and a whole lot more. But as our talk nears its end, I continue to feel nagged by that heavy sigh thing. What was that about? I need to understand this, even though I have just survived my not knowing, by offering the truth of it into the conversation, escaping rejection and the loss of the search assignment. Feeling emboldened by the positive outcome of my last question, I want to know more. But am I willing to jeopardize everything to understand? Just then I make the decision to do something I've never considered before. In that moment, I choose to be true to myself by accepting the content of my experience no matter what. No more pretending, posturing, or denial. I want to be who I am and have what I want. I hear myself say, Hey, Bob, can I ask you one more question? When he says, Okay, I refer back to when I requested he clarify his vocabulary and then said, You took a long, deep sigh before you spoke, which made me feel that you were frustrated with my question. Is that how you felt? Again, silence as my heart pounds. Fearfully, I braced myself to hear the undesired version of the truth. But then Bob replies, I'm sorry about that. I was smoking a cigarette and only had one drag left before putting it out. I wasn't frustrated with your questions at all. In fact, I think you have a really good shot at this because you took the time to ask the questions you needed to get the job done. I was completely stunned. Not only had I secured a high-paying search assignment, but also for the first time I realized how completely mistaken I was in my perception of others and how I thought I appeared to them. Instantly, it became clear 
how my fear, doubt, and guilt have been self-generated, and why I always feared discussions would never bear the fruits I sought, why I was constantly in doubt about how to proceed when conversations showed signs of derailing, and why I felt guilty no matter the outcome. In fact, whether I was successful or not, my life seemed like a perpetual no-win scenario, which always left me feeling as if I had done something wrong. I wondered to myself, how in the world had I become this person?